Let's take our Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I think it's safe to say that one of the most iconic features of the Christmas season is its songs. Music is very much a part of what this season is about. There are songs that we sing this time of year that we only ever sing this time of year. In fact, that's true whether it is religious songs or secular songs. Not, not only do, do songs have great power to, uh, to, to present a message and evoke certain emotion from us, I think these songs also do a good job of presenting what I would call the dilemma of Christmas. And what I mean by dilemma is the two parts of this season. On the one hand, it is a time of great joy. Merry Christmas, right? It is the most wonderful time of the year, right? I mean, this, this is what we celebrate, and for a lot of folks, this is a time of great joy, and it is nostalgic. There is tradition, there's family, there's food, and then there's food. And so it's a great time of year, right, for all those reasons. But on the other side, it's a hard time of year. I mean, it's hard for some folks because this season may bring with it a host of other realities of life, a host of other emotions, situations, circumstances, maybe even going way back. In fact, for some folks, this is hardly a time of merriment at all. It's just something they have to endure. But, but even on, on top of that, you know, we, we all recognize that there, there can be a certain struggle and difficulty that comes with the Christmas season. And I think that is reflected in its songs. I wrote about this in the newsletter article, which I'm sure all of you read more than once, all right? I have no doubt. But I, I, I reflected on this, the way that we have got, we've got really happy songs, and then we have songs that stri- strike really melancholy kinds of notes, religious and secular. Let me give you one a great example of this. Probably one of the most well-known secular songs of the season, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, Right? You, you all know the words, we, we don't have to sing it. Have yourself a merry little Christmas, let your heart be light. From now on your troubles will be out of sight. Now you say, Pastor, I thought you meant that the songs were kind of sad. Well, one, if you hear the tune, it's definitely kind of a minor key, right? But did you know those were not the original words? In fact, originally the song was written for a musical, Meet Me in St. Louis. Judy Garland was the first one to sing it. And the lyric she was first presented with said this. Imagine this being your Christmas classic. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. Next year, we may all be living in the past. Another phrase says this. Faithful friends who not are near to us, who were dear to us, will be near to us no more. But at least we all will be together. If the Lord allows, from now on we'll have to muddle through somehow. So have yourself a merry little Christmas (laughs) now. Now, I know I tell you folks stuff, and you think, he, that can't possibly be true, all right? But you look this up. Judy Garland refused to sing the song that way. 
So she and the director of the musical went to the lyricist, and they changed the lyrics to the more familiar song we know now. But it's interesting to me, that just reflects that for a lot of folks, this is not a great time of year. For those who were around during the first Christmas, it wasn't a great time of year. In fact, the Bible describes it this way, those who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. Darkness was the defining word. It, it, it's simple, it's straight to the point, but it, it captures the essence of what was going on in the first century. It was a time of darkness in terms of rebellion and sin. It was a time of darkness and that the people had not heard a word from the Lord in 400 years. And in the midst of that time, Israel had been under the thumb of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, now the Romans. No, it was not the most wonderful time of the year. No, no the, the, the context was one of great pain, great sin, great rebellion, great disregard for God and His Word. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? Maybe we could just as easily say it is still people walking in darkness. And so, the Christmas season, the Christmas message, the story that we have this time of year is a fitting one because it is one that not only speaks to joy and hope and peace and love, but we do have the promises of the coming of Christ really crashing in in the midst of what can also be a time of grief and hurt and pain. So over the next several weeks, during the the, the Christmas season, and for just a few more minutes this morning, we're going to give some attention to Matthew. Matthew chapters 1 and 2, this is going to be our focus as we look at how not only Matthew presents to us the Christmas story, but how the New Testament begins. This This is the first book, and these are the first chapters of this new covenant. And I think it's fitting so we take a look at, at, at Matthew's presentation in particular, while there's all kinds of themes associated with the birth of Christ, and, they're, they're, and we'll certainly reflect on them as we go, I think all of them in Matthew in particular can be centered in this one theme. Matthew's gospel is concerned with presenting Jesus Christ as the King. I mean, this, this was the need of the day. People walking in darkness, what do they need? Those in sin and rebellion and despair and grief, they need a Savior. They need a Rescuer. They need a Redeemer. They need a King. If there's ever going to be any hope and peace and joy and love, we need a King. And the same can be said today. We still need this king. We need this one promised to us in the Old Testament. This forever king who would sit on a forever throne. This one who would bring righteousness and justice. The world's no different than it was 2,000 years ago. This is still our same need. And so Matthew, whose entire gospel is concerned with this, showing us that Christ is the king, Jesus is the king, focuses in on this in these first two chapters. I mean, he's going to show us in this lineage of Christ that he's the legal heir to the throne. He's going to show us then in the stories related to the wise men and their interactions with Herod. They're going to show that he is the, he's the prophetic 
heir to the throne. All these prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. And to the fact that we have wise men coming, pagan men from a pagan nation, coming all the way to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem in order to worship Jesus. Not pay homage to Herod, but to worship Jesus. Matthew then gives us this picture that Christ is the global heir to the throne. He meets all of these requirements. And so our time in the weeks to come is going to look at Matthew's presentation of Jesus as the king, the king of promise from the Old Testament. I think when we understand these, these images that Matthew reflects on, the nature of the kingship of Christ, I think we see why this season is a time of real hope and joy and peace. So what are those? So I just want to give you one this morning. And I understand where we, where we are in the service, all right? I understand, okay? I know a lot of you thinking, uh, does he have a watch on his hand? I don't know, right? You're, I mean, you're really concerned here, and uh, it's uh, really cold outside, uh, but we're practically living on the sun in here, all right? So, <laughs> that will manage. If you, if you ever want to get me to stop, just crank up the heat, all right? Okay? Think, I wouldn't know how to do this, all right? You call one of the deacons, hey, turn the heat up on this guy, all right? So what, what, is, what is the promise then of Christmas? Well, first, Christmas promises a king who reigns. That's brilliant, isn't it? Right? A king who reigns. When I say a king who reigns, I, I mean an actual reign over, over an actual kingdom that has eternal ramifications. I mean, it's, it's, it's fitting that if, if you're going to talk about a king, you should talk about a kingdom. You should talk about one then who has authority, one then who has control. And Matthew begins here by demonstrating this is who we are talking about. We are talking about the one promised in the Old Testament, the forever king sitting on a forever throne, reigning over forever kingdom, filling all those promises of the Old Testament. Now, Put it in its context. First century. The known world at the time is being controlled by a guy who goes by the name Caesar Augustus. Now, Augustus was a title given to him. I believe Octavius was his name. And Augustus was a name given to him by the Roman Senate. You know what it means? It could mean revered or one who is a god. Augustus. In fact, he thought so much of himself, he named a month after himself. Anybody guess what that is, right? August. This was the time of year when he won his most battles, and so an entire month. He did that, by the way. It was called something else. He changed the name to represent himself. His great uncle did that with July. Julius Caesar, right? So they, they kind of had a habit of doing that kind of thing. This is what they thought of themselves. So Caesar Augustus thought something of himself. And he was the one who was then ruling the day, so to speak. And though there were some freedoms enjoyed in Rome, there was no doubt who was in charge. In fact, on his death, the Roman Senate officially declared him to be a god. So here was the expectation of that day, just as it was in the day that Matthew would have actually been written, somewhere in the mid-50s. The actual expectation is that everybody in the Roman Empire would acknowledge that the emperor, whoever he was, and it kind of really starts here, 
Whoever this emperor was, was to be acknowledged for having a spark of divinity in him. And so, you were to declare that Caesar is Lord. This was something the church refused to do. But along with Caesar, there was this guy named Herod. Herod was an Edomite. You may say, what's the big deal? Well, he was of the lineage of Esau. And it doesn't take much Bible reading to know who gets to be the king of Israel. Somebody of the line of Judah, of the line of David. Well, that can't be anybody coming from Esau. Herod was not a legitimate king. His throne was not a legitimate throne. His kingdom was not a legitimate kingdom. He achieved this position by military might, by political savvy, and the Roman Senate put him in this position of power for this one little piece of property. And he ruled like a tyrant. Now, we know he did massive building projects, but how do governments do massive building projects? Did he take his own 401k? No, he taxed people. Oh, yeah, and then there's that small little deal where he killed every male child to and under. He's not going to be man of the year, right? So think about this. This is the nature of the leadership that's going on in Israel at the time. This is what the people walking in darkness, these are, these, this is what they are facing. This is what they are enduring. And coming into this atmosphere is this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I know it doesn't sound dramatic or incredible, but, but trust me, this is a striking statement. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. So, Pastor, I'm not getting it. It's book of gene- okay, it's genealogy. It's family tree, right? I mean, I do the same thing on Ancestry.com. Oh, so what's the big deal? Jesus Christ, right? Christ isn't a last name. And Gleason's my last name. But, but you don't call me Scott Gleason, right? You call me Pastor Scott. One of those is a name. The other's a title. They just happen to put the title last. Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. In fact, he's going to go on to mention this in this genealogy two more times. Jump down there to verse 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Verse 18, now now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. So in just these first 18 verses, we have the title mentioned four times. So that's not a coincidence. It's not just a neat literary trick. It's a theological point. It's, all right, what's the big deal? The word Christ means anointed. It is the equivalent of the Old Testament term that would be Messiah. This means one appointed by God, and in this case, the one appointed by God to rule and to reign. The fact that he is called Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Matthew's really concerned with making it clear, legally speaking, Jesus Christ deserves to sit, far more than Herod, on the throne of David. 
The one who is the Christ is the one who's been exalted to the position of authority, of power. Again, the one who is anointed is the one who is placed in positions of power by God himself. This is a divine title. Jesus is not just some kind of regular earthly king. This is a different king altogether. Jesus serves as the king, the anointed of God, the one who will rule and reign forever king, forever throne, forever kingdom. This is the clear promise of the title granted to Jesus in these verses. And again, it points us to this first reality of Matthew's depiction of Jesus in these first two chapters. He stands as the king who reigns. This, by the way, is is found in some other prophecies. Go on to the next next, uh, slide. Genesis 49, going all the way back to the beginning. Jacob is giving a prophetic word over his son Judah in the midst of giving it over all 12 of his sons. He says this, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Shiloh is an Old Testament prophetic reference to the Messiah. This is talking then about Jesus. How about a more familiar passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. So again, the first picture that we are given here of the kingship of Christ is the king. Christ is the king. Jesus is the anointed, the promised one of God who reigns. They might say, all right, pastor, what exactly does that mean? Because it doesn't seem like he's in a whole lot of control now. I mean, in other words, they're Seems like there's a lot of bad people still doing a lot of bad things, right? So we understand this is a different kind of kingdom. Oh yes, one day there will be a very literal, physical, real kingdom. And Christ will rule over the universe. And every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That for sure is going to happen. But until then, where does this king reign on his forever throne over his forever kingdom in you and in me this is why jesus main message you've heard this before his main message was preaching the kingdom of god why because he was the king and where does this kingdom come it comes into me it is a result of the gospel the work of salvation through jesus christ making me the new creation i become a part of this new kingdom we as a church are a part of this new kingdom where does christ rule and reign he rules and reigns over my life. And so when we look at the season of Christmas, I know we don't associate it with this. This may not be our go-to message when we think of the Christmas season. 
But I'm not a guy who's always going to go to the go-to message, right? In other words, we're not going to do sweet little sappy talks about, you know, Mary or Joseph or shepherds or wise men still seek him. Not that those are insignificant, they're just not the point. And I will tell you, rising above all of the rest is the fact that this story, these events, this season reminds us You, as a believer, have no right to your life. Jesus owns you. He owns you. Because what does the king have? Absolute, sovereign authority. I'm not saying you can't resist him, as we do. So what would the season expect of me then? You ready for this? You don't hear this word a lot. Submission. That's not on a banner anywhere, is it, right? Christmas, the season of joy, love, hope, peace, and submission, right? Anybody get a Christmas card like that? Let's write one, all right? Let's write one. I'm going to write Christmas cards. You think, oh, that'd be great. Wow, yeah. I know exactly who I'd send those to, right? But it, it, it is It is the clear application of what would be a title such as this. Jesus is Lord. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, I am to submit to that lordship. Does he rule and reign over me? Can I honestly say in looking at my life that Christ is ruling and reigning over me? He, by virtue of the work of the gospel, his death, resurrection, paying the price to free me from sin and death, Purchase the rights to my life? And am I living in submission to Him? Let me ask you, church, as we enter in this Christmas season, as we look forward to a new year, can you honestly say Christ is ruling and reigning over your life? We will have a time of invitation. You will have an opportunity to respond. And as, as we sing together, perhaps you'd want to come and kneel here and pray. You're welcome to do that. Maybe you'd like me to pray for you. Maybe there's something in your life where you'd say, Pastor, I know for sure. This Christ is not ruling and reigning here, at least not in the overt and, and explicit way that He should. But I'd also make an appeal to, hear, to anybody who doesn't know Christ. Understand this, the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And I'm telling you, if you wait until that day instead of doing it this day, if you've never submitted to that name now, and you are forced to do it then, you will then be ushered into an eternity of judgment. So I implore you, what a great way to celebrate the Christmas season, to trust Christ as Savior. Ask God to forgive you because Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, and in Him, God's wrath is satisfied. In Him, the penalty against sin is paid. And your sin can be transferred to Him, and His righteousness can be transferred to you. Would you trust Christ as your Savior today? Let's stand together and I'm going to pray. And after I pray then, you'll have a chance to respond as the Lord would lead. Father God, we do thank you for gathering us. We thank you for this time to think about you and your work in this season and our Savior as our King. And Father, I pray that we would find ourselves then living in submission to the rule and reign of Christ over us. And Father, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for bringing us into this forever kingdom, for giving us the blessings that come with it. Now, may we live in holy reverence before you. Have your way in us that you may be glorified through us. It's in Christ's name we pray. 
Amen.